Well, hello, and welcome to Auditing the Global Capital Markets with Allison. Such a pleasure to be back with you today and so excited to continue our discussion. We're gonna pick up where we left off as I found our very interesting overview on Africa really drew us into a history and an understanding of the global capital markets for the over 54 countries in Africa and the history economically, geographically, financially. And I think it would be great to continue that discussion and then we can move on to other aspects of the global capital markets in the next program. So again, I'm Allison Johnson. Welcome to Auditing the Global Capital Markets. And we are continuing our dialogue. If you would like to be in touch with me, feel free to email me at allison, A-L-L-I-S-O-N, at 2414morgan.com or visit our website at www.2414mdinternational.com. So very happy to be in touch and to hear from you on any of the social media platforms as well. We're looking at Facebook and Instagram, LinkedIn and Pinterest, Twitter and Snapchat and across TikTok. So happy to hear from you. And let's pick up where we left off, understanding where we are in the history for the African continent. Let's jump into the 15th century um, at the height of the African slave trade, also called the Trans-Saharan slave trade or the Indian Ocean and Atlantic slave trades as it covered so much of the African continent. Now, slavery had long been practiced in Africa between the 15th and 19th centuries. The Atlantic slave trade that took Africans over into the Americas took an estimated seven to 12 million people of African ancestry as slaves in the New World. In addition, more than 1 million Europeans were captured by barbary pirates and sold as slaves in North Africa between the 16th and 19th centuries. So very interesting addition to the history. In West Africa, the decline of the Atlantic slave trade in the 1820s caused dramatic economic shifts in local polities. The gradual decline of slave trading, prompted by a lack of demand for slaves in the New World, increasing anti-slavery legislation in Europe and America, and the British Royal Navy's increasing presence off the West African coast, obliged African states to adopt new economies. Between 1808 and 1860, the British West African Squadron seized approximately 1,600 slave ships and freed 150,000 Africans who were aboard. Action was also taken against African leaders who refused to agree to British treaties to outlaw the trade of African slaves. For example, there were actions taken against the, quote, usurping king of Lagos, unquote, who was deposed in 1851. Anti-slavery treaties were signed with over 50 African rulers. 
the largest powers of West Africa, the Ashanti Confederacy, which is around Ghana, present day, the Kingdom of Dalmay, which is around now the country of Togo, Benin, and Nigeria, and the Oyo Empire, also of West Africa, adopted different ways of adapting to the shift. The Ashante and the Dalmay concentrated on the development of, quote, legitimate commerce, unquote, in the form of palm oil, cocoa, timber, and gold, forming the bedrock of West Africa's modern export trade. The Oyo Empire, unable to adapt, collapsed into civil wars. We then moved to what we now call the scramble for Africa um, and the period of colonialism. The scramble for Africa, also known as the partition of Africa or the conquest of Africa, was the invasion, annexation, division, and colonization of most of Africa by seven Western European powers during an era known as New Imperialism between 1833 and 1914. The 10% of Africa that was under formal European control in 1870 increased to almost 90% by 1914, with only Liberia and Ethiopia remaining independent. The Berlin Conference of 1884, which regulated European colonization and trade in Africa, is usually accepted as the beginning, because in fact, the scramble for Africa is a term widely used by historians and used to describe the invasion, the annexation, the division, and overall colonization of most of Africa by those seven Western European powers during an era known as, quote, new imperialism. And the seven Western European powers um, were from the Western European re regions that extend from the Netherlands to Spain, Portugal, England, France, Italy, and Germany at that time. In the last quarter of the 19th century, there were considerable political rivalries between the European empires. And the colonial empire is a collective of territories either contiguous with the imperial center or located overseas, settled by the population of a certain state and governed by that state. That's what the European empires did over time which provided the impetus for the scramble for Africa to occupy these territories. The later years of the 19th century saw a transition from informal, quote unquote, imperialism, military influence and economic dominance in the early to later years of the 19th century to direct rule um, by the end of the 19th century. Most of Africa was decolonized during the Cold War, which is in the middle of the 1950s and 60s after uh, World War II. The imperial boundaries and economic systems imposed by the scramble for Africa still affect the politics and economy of Africa today. Imperial rule by Europeans would continue until after the conclusion of World War II, when almost all remaining colonial territories 
gradually obtained formal independence. Independence movements in Africa gained momentum following World War II, which left the major European powers weakened. In 1951, Libya, a former Italian colony, gained independence. In 1956, Tunisia and Morocco won their independence from France. Ghana followed suit the next year in March of 1957, becoming the first of the sub-Saharan colonies to be granted independence. Most of the rest of the continent became independent over the next decade. Portugal's overseas presence in sub-Saharan Africa, which is considered the area and region of the continent of Africa that lies south of the Sahara. These include Central Africa, East Africa, Southern Africa, and West Africa. So sub-Saharan Africa or sub-Sahara is geopolitically in addition to the African countries and territories that are situated fully in that part of Africa. So that's why they call it sub-Saharan Africa. So the Portugal overseas presence in sub-Saharan Africa, most notably in Angola, Cape Verde, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, and Sao Tome Principe lasted from the 16th century to 1975 after the Estado Novo regime was overthrown in a military coup in Lisbon. Rhodesia unilaterally declared independence from the United Kingdom in 1965. Rhodesia is now Zimbabwe. Rhodesia was under the white minority government of Ian Smith, but was not internationally recognized as an independent state as Zimbabwe until 1980, when black nationalists gained power after a bitter guerrilla war. Although South Africa was one of the first African countries to gain independence, the state remained under the control of the country's white minority through a system of racial segregation known as apartheid until 1994. And I am very proud that when I was in college in the 1980s into the 1990s, I worked on the anti-apartheid movement and for the divestment of the USA and its different institutions from the apartheid system of South Africa. And then I went to work in South Africa in 1992 through 1995 um, in dismantling the apartheid system in South Africa and later on working in Namibia for its independence and finally working on the ending of the civil wars in Angola and Mozambique as they began to get independence and come out of their civil wars in the 1990s. So very interesting history and my connection to that part of Southern Africa. So now when we turn to the post-colonial Africa period, it is very interesting to look at this issue of the decolonization of Africa, which was a process that took place in the mid to late 1950s to 1975 during the Cold War with radical government changes on the continent as colonial governments made the transition to independent states. Now the process was often marred with violence, which you know makes sense because it's only natural that there's going to be a struggle for power. And that took place pretty much 
you know, across the board. And uh, there was violence, political turmoil, widespread unrest, and organized revolts in both Northern and Sub-Saharan countries uh, across the board um, for many decades um, after, you know, 1945, end of the World War II. And so that went on for quite, quite some time. So today, Africa contains 54 sovereign states. And it's interesting that when you look at this issue of, of the uprisings, people don't know about all the rebellions that took place to fight colonialism. But you had everything from the Mau Mau Rebellion in British Kenya, the Algerian War in French Algeria, the Congo Crisis in the Belgian Congo, the Angolan War of Independence in Portuguese Angola, the Zanzibar Revolution in the Sultanate of Zanzibar in Tanzania against the British, and the Nigerian Civil War against the uh, British, and then the Nigerian Civil War that took place for the secessionist state of Biafra. So there was a lot of turmoil after the World War II. So the scramble for Africa took place between 1870 and 1914, and it was a significant period of European colonialism in Africa that ended with almost all of Africa and its natural resources being controlled as colonies by a small number of European states, racing to secure as much land as possible while avoiding conflict amongst themselves. The partition of Africa was confirmed in the Berlin Agreement of 1885 with little regard to local differences. Almost all the pre-colonial states of Africa had lost their sovereignty, with the only exceptions being Liberia, which had been settled in the early 19th century by African-American former slaves, and Ethiopia, that was later occupied by Italy in 1936, but only lasted very short time period because Ethiopia fought back. Italian Ethiopia was also known as the Italian Empire of Ethiopia, was the territory of the Ethiopian Empire, which was occupied by Italy for approximately five years. Italian Ethiopia was not an administrative entity, but the formal name of the former territory of the Ethiopian Empire. Which was, you know, which now constituted the governance of Amhara, Harar, Gala, Sidamo, and Sioa after the establishment of East Africa, Italian East Africa. So it's a very um, small period of time. But after the Second it Italian Ethiopian War, in which Ethiopia was occupied by fascist Italy, the Ethiopian territories were proclaimed by Benito Mussolini as part of the Italian East Africa in 1936 with the capital of the Africa Orientale Italiana, AOI being established in Addis Ababa, and King Victor Emmanuel III of Italy proclaiming himself emperor of, of Ethiopia in 1936. But fighting between Ethiopian and Italian regular forces continued until February 1937, and afterward guerrilla fighting persisted until 1939. In 1941, during World War II, Ethiopia was occupied by allied forces, mainly from the British Empire in the East African campaign, but an Italian guerrilla war continued until 1943. The country was placed under British military administration, 
Emperor Haile Selassie was allowed to return and reclaim his throne, but the British authorities ruled the country until December 1944, when full sovereignty was restored with the signing of an Anglo-Ethiopian agreement, although some regions remained under British control for more years. Under the Peace Treaty of 1947, Italy recognized the sovereignty and independence of Ethiopia and renounced all claims to special interest or influence in that country. Many Italian settlers remained for decades after receiving full pardon by Emperor Selassie. And when I went and moved to Ethiopia in uh, 2003, you could still see some European presence. I lived in the area known as um, Amhara area, but I went and visited lots of different areas from the Somali area to the Harar area to the Sioa area. And all of it was formerly occupied by different European powers. And there were still Europeans residing um, in different parts of Ethiopia. So they were affected as well um, by the colonial era, interesting enough. And Britain, Britain and France had the largest holdings in Africa, but Germany, Spain, Italy, Belgium, and Portugal also had colonies. The process of decolonization began as direct consequence of World War II. By 1977, 50 African countries had gained independence from European colonial powers. It's interesting that during the World Wars, African soldiers were conscripted into imperial militaries. Some African soldiers also volunteered. Veterans from over 1.3 million African troops participated in World War II and fought in both European and Asian theaters of war. This led to a deeper political awareness and the expectation of greater respect and self-determination, which was left largely unfulfilled. During the 1941 Atlantic Conference, the British and the U.S. leaders met to discuss ideas for the post-war world. Only one of the provisions added by President Roosevelt was that all people had the right to self-determination, inspiring hope in all the British colonies that they would get their independence. So very interesting how World War II played such a major role in African decolonization. So in fact, on February 12, 1941, USA President Franklin D. Roosevelt and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill met to discuss the post-war world. The result was the Atlantic Charter. It was on a treaty and was not submitted to the British Parliament or the Senate of the USA for ratification, but it turned out to be a widely acclaimed document. One of the clauses, Clause 3, referred to the right to decide what form of government people wanted and to the restoration of self-government. Prime Minister Churchill argued in the British Parliament that the document referred to the, quote, the states and nations of Europe now under the Nazi yoke, unquote. President Roosevelt regarded it as applicable across the world. Anti-colonial politicians immediately saw it as relevant to colonial empires. The United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, three years after the end of World War II, recognized all people as being born free and equal. After World War II, the USA and the African colonies put pressure on Britain to abide by the terms of the Atlantic Charter. 
After the war, some Britons considered African colonies to be childish and immature. British colonizers introduced democratic government at local levels in the colonies. So it's very condescending. Britain was forced to agree, but Churchill rejected universal applicability of self-determination for subject nations. So see, Winston Churchill did not want to allow them to be free countries. Italy, a colonial power, lost its African empire, Italian East Africa, Italian Ethiopia, Italian Eritrea, Italian Somalia, and Italian Libya as a result of World War II. Furthermore, colonies such as Nigeria, Senegal, and Ghana pushed for self-governance as colonial powers were exhausted by the war efforts of World War II. The United Nations 1960 Declaration on the Granting of Independence to Colonial Countries and Peoples stated that colonial exploitation is a denial of human rights and that power should be transferred back to the countries or territories concerned. There were, so those were the external causes for the end of the colonization of Africa, but there were also internal causes. Colonial economic exploitation involved the siphoning off of resource extraction, such as mining profits to European shareholders at the expense of internal development, causing major local socioeconomic grievances. For early African nationalists, decolonization was a moral imperative around which a political movement could be assembled. In the 1930s, the colonial powers had cultivated, sometimes inadvertently, a small elite of local African leaders educated in Western universities, where they became familiar with and fluent in ideas such as self-determination. Although independence was not encouraged, arrangements between these leaders and the colonial powers developed. And such figures as Jomo Kenyatta of Kenya, Kwame Nkrumah of the Gold Coast, now known as Ghana, Julius Nyeri of Tanganyika, now called Tanzania, Leopold Sedar Senghor of Senegal, Namdi Aziwike of uh, Nigeria, and Felix Wofet Bwenye of Cote d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast came to lead the struggles for African nationalization. During the Second World War, some local African industries and towns expanded when U-boats patrolling the Atlantic Ocean reduced raw material transportation to Europe. Over time, urban communities, industries, and trade unions grew, improving literacy and education and leading to pro-independence newspaper establishments. By 1945, the Fifth Pan-African Congress demanded the end of colonialism and delegates included future presidents of Ghana, Kenya, Malawi, and national archivists. There's a huge economic legacy of this period. And, and in fact, there's an extensive body of literature that has examined the legacy of colonialism and colonial institutions on economic outcomes in Africa, with numerous studies showing disputed economic effects of colonialism. The economic legacy of colonialism is difficult to quantify and is disputed. Modernization theory posits the colonial powers built infrastructure to integrate Africa into the world economy. However, this was built mainly for extraction purposes. African economies were structured to benefit the colonizer and any surplus was likely to be drained, thereby stifling capital accumulation. Dependency theory suggests that most African economies 
continued to occupy a subordinate position in the world economy after independence with a reliance on primary commodities such as copper in Zambia and tea in Kenya. Despite this continued reliance and unfair trading terms, a meta-analysis of 18 African countries found that a third of countries experienced increased economic growth post-independence. We also have the issue of the linguistic diversity in Africa being eroded from the colonial uh, legacy. The legacy um, is a bit, you know, argued, but language has been used by the Western colonial powers to divide the territories and create new identities, which has led to lots of conflicts and tensions between African nations. Now, in the immediate post-independence period, African countries largely regained colonial legislation. However, by 2015, much colonial legislation had been replaced by laws that were written locally. So that's been an improvement. But what has been really hard has been the transition to full democratization and full economic transformation for all of the countries. And that's really what's at stake now. Today, Africa contains 54 sovereign countries, most of which have borders that were drawn during the era of European colonialism. Since independence, African states have frequently been hampered by instability, corruption, violence, and authoritarianism. Pardon me, authoritarianism. The vast majority of African states are republics that operate under some form of the presidential system of rule. However, few of them have been able to sustain democratic governments on a permanent basis for the criteria laid out by Lerman, et cetera, in 2018. Only Botswana and Mauritius have been consistently democratic for the entirety of their post-colonial history. So that's amazing out of the 54 sovereign countries, only two. Most African countries have experienced several coups or periods of military dictatorship between 1990 and 2018, though the continent as a whole has trended towards more democratic governance. Upon independence, an overwhelming majority of Africans lived in extreme poverty. The continent suffered from the lack of infrastructural or industrial development under colonial rule, along with instability. With limited financial resources or access to global markets, relatively stable countries such as Kenya still experienced only very slow economic development. Only a handful of African countries succeeded in obtaining rapid growth prior to 1990. Exceptions include Libya and Equatorial Guinea, both of which possess large oil reserves. Instability throughout the continent after decolonization resulted primarily from marginalization of ethnic groups and corruption. In pursuit of personal political gain, many leaders deliberately promoted ethnic conflicts, 
some of which had originated during the colonial period, such as from the grouping of multiple unrelated ethnic groups into a single colony, the splitting of a distinct ethnic group between multiple colonies, or existing conflicts being exacerbated by colonial rule. For instance, the preferential treatment given to ethnic Hutus over Tutsis in Rwanda during German and Belgian rule. And this, of course, you know, led to the genocide of Rwanda in 1992 to 1994. And I also have to make a remark that it's very interesting that this complete marginalization of ethnic groups is called institutional racism, or also known as systemic racism, which is defined as policies and practices that exist throughout a whole society or organization and that result in and support a continued unfair advantage to some people and unfair or harmful treatment of others based on their race. And it manifests as discrimination in areas such as criminal justice, employment, housing, healthcare, educational, and political representation. And it's interesting because this can be done both within countries and across former European colonies, because if you look at it, it's happening in Europe and North America, but it's also happening across Africa. So it's very interesting if you look at the overall you know, history of what, what's happening across, you know, across the board. Faced with increasingly frequent and severe violence, military rule was widely accepted by the population of many countries as, means, as a means to maintain order. And during the 1970s and 1980s, a majority of African countries were controlled by military dictatorships. Territorial disputes between nations and rebellions by groups seeking independence were also common in independent African states. The most devastating of these was the Nigerian Civil War, fought between governments and government forces, and an Igbo separatist republic, which resulted in a famine that killed one to two million people during the Nigerian Civil War or the Biafra War. Very difficult period of time. The Nigerian Civil War, also known as the Nigerian Biafran War or the Biafran War, was a civil war fought between Nigeria and the Republic of Biafra, a secessionist state, which had declared its independence from Nigeria in 1967. So that was an internal war that was caused by this secessionist movement by the Igbo Separatist Republic. And it's very interesting because they're a very sizable population around the Delta and River states. And they're an ethnic, there's an ethnic Igbo population in Cameroon, Gabon, Equatorial Guinea, as well as Nigeria. And, in, and there were also two civil wars in Sudan, the first lasting from 1955 to 1972, and the second from 1983 to 2005. Collectively, they killed around 3 million people. Both were fought primarily on ethnic and religious lines. So this began the conflict internally within the African continent. 
Cold War conflicts between the United States of America and the Soviet Union also contributed to instability in Africa. Both the Soviet Union and the United States offered considerable incentives to African political and military leaders who aligned themselves with the superpowers foreign policy. As an example, during the Angolan Civil War, the Soviet and Cuban powers aligned the MPLA, which was the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola, for some years called the People's Movement for the Liberation of Angola Labor Party, uh, which was an Angolan left-wing social democratic political party, and they were aligned with the Soviet and the Cubans. And then the Americans aligned with UNITA, which was the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, which is the second largest political party in Angola, and that was founded in 1966. And it fought alongside the popular movement for the liberation of Angola or the MPLA during the Civil War, during the Angola War for Independence from 1961 to 1965. But then they had a fractious end of the Civil War and then they they started the the, uh, Independence War and then they started a civil war between each other. And then the Soviets and the Cubans backed one party, the MPLA, and then the Americans, they backed the other party, the UNITA party. And so each one was receiving the vast majority of their military and political support from these other countries. Many African countries became highly dependent on foreign aid during these wars and these civil wars and these wars for independence. The sudden loss of both Soviet and American aid at the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Union of the Soviet Republics resulted in severe economic and political turmoil in the countries most dependent on foreign support. And as you know, that happened in uh, 1989, 1990, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. It was the process of internal disintegration within the Soviet Union, which resulted in the end of the existence of the country and of its federal government as a sovereign state, which in turn resulted in its 15 constituent republics gaining independence. So all that also affected Africa that had had a lot of influence and uh, support from the USSR. Now there was a major famine in Ethiopia between 1983 and 1985, killing up to 1.2 million people, which most historians attribute primarily to the forced relocation of farm workers and the seizure of grain by communist Dur governments during that time period, further exacerbated by the civil war in Ethiopia. In 1994, a genocide in Rwanda resulted in up to 800,000 deaths and added to a severe refugee crisis and fueled the rise of militia groups in the neighboring countries around Ethiopia and Rwanda during the famines, the civil wars, and the genocides. This contributed to the outbreak of the first and second Congo wars because the refugees coming out of the countries around Rwanda after the genocide of the 800,000 people in, in Rwanda, they went around the region. They caused the Congo wars. The first one was 1996, 1997. Um, also nicknamed Africa's First World War. It was a civil war and international military conflict 
which took place mostly in the country then called Zaire, now called Congo, with major spillovers into Sudan and Uganda. And the conflict culminated in a foreign invasion that replaced the Zairean president at the time. And the second Congo war, also known as the Great War of Africa, began in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, formerly the Zaire Congo in August of 1998, little more than a year after the first Congo war and involved some of the same issues, eventually involving belligerents from across the region, which were some of the most devastating military conflicts in modern Africa with up to 5.5 million deaths from those wars, making it by far the deadliest conflict in modern African history and one of the costliest wars in human history. And that's something that I always, you know, look at globally because the global capital markets, the global economies, they're all being affected by these conflicts. And it's, it's, it's very sad because when you look at the statistics, they really start to increase, you know, in terms of the deaths during some of these later years where they have interesting, you know, pages of how certain periods of time across every continent, you know, you see just massive levels of, of deaths. Um, in the millions, and you know you're you're looking at over time hundreds of millions of people um, that have died across every continent from these wars and these conflicts, and it really affects the development, the growth, and the overall makeup of these regions. So interesting to look at that as well, and to understand that all these things cost so many lives various conflicts between various insurgent groups and governments continue until today. Since 2003, there has been an ongoing conflict in Darfur in Sudan, which peaked in intensity from 2003 to 2005, with notable spikes in violence in 2007, and 2013 to 2015, killing around 300,000 people total. The Boko Haram insurgency primarily within Nigeria, with considerable fighting in Niger, Chad, and Cameroon as well, has killed around 350,000 people since 2009. Most African conflicts have been reduced to low intensity conflicts as of 2022. However, the Tigray War, which began in 2020, there in northern Tigray of Ethiopia, has killed an estimated 300 to 500,000 people primarily due to famine and the war there in Ethiopia, and that only came to an end in 2023. Overall, though, violence across Africa has greatly declined in the 21st century with the end of civil wars in Angola, Sierra Leone, and Algeria in 2002, Liberia in 2003, and Sudan and Burundi in 2005. The Second Congo War, which involved nine countries and several insurgent groups ended in 2003. This decline in violence coincided with many countries abandoning communist style command economies and opening up for market reforms, 
which over the course of the 1990s and 2000s promoted the establishment of permanent peaceful trade between neighboring countries. And that's good. What they're calling it now is the capitalist peace or, or the capitalist peace theory, commercial peace that posits that market openness contributes to more peaceful behavior among states and that developed market-oriented economies are less likely to engage in conflict with one another. You know, along with the democratic peace theory, which also posits an, that an, an institutionalist argument for peace, that commercial peace forms part of the overall tripod for peace. And there are a lot of theories about that. Prominent mechanisms for the commercial peace revolve around how capitalism, trade and interdependence, and capital interdependence raise the cost of warfare, incentivize groups to lobby against war, make it harder for leaders to go to war, and reduce the economic benefits of conquest. Now, of course, we have to turn back to this in light of what's happening with the invasion by Russia and Ukraine, where clearly that theory didn't come to pass because they went ahead and invaded Ukraine and the war has been going on for now soon to be 18 months. So I think we'll have to revisit that theory <laughs> for sure. But nevertheless, very interesting um, to understand uh, that you know peaceful trade does promote some growth. Improved stability and economic reforms have led to a great increase in foreign investment into many African nations, mainly from China, which further spurred economic growth. Between 2000 and 2014, annual GDP in Sub-Saharan Africa averaged 5.02%, doubling its total GDP from $811 billion to $1.63 trillion if you have a constant US dollar of 2015 rate. North Africa experienced comparable growth rates. A significant part of this growth can also be attributed to the facilitated diffusion of information technologies and specifically the mobile telephone. While several individual countries have maintained high growth rates since 2014, overall growth has considerably slowed, primarily as a result of falling commodity prices, continued lack of industrialization, and epidemics of Ebola and COVID-19. So those things continue um, to plague growth because you need industrialization um, because that's a period of social and economic change that transforms a human group from an agrarian society into an industrial society. And this involves an extensive reorganization of an economy for the purpose of manufacturing. But the other side of it is that industrialization is also a part of a growing uh, increase in polluting industries, heavily dependent on fossil fuels. And with the increasing focus on sustainable development and green industrial policy practices, industrialization increasingly includes technological leapfrogging with direct investment in more advanced cleaner technologies, because that way countries across Africa and other continents can skip 
um, the industrialization of the last 200 and 300 years, like in Europe and North America. Now, if we review a little bit about the geography, geology, ecology, and environment of Africa, um, as we wrap up this program, very interesting to understand the overall topography of Africa. Africa is the largest of the three great southward projections from the largest landmass of the earth. Separated from Europe by the Mediterranean Sea, it is joined to Asia at its northeast extremity by the Isthmus of Suez, transected by the Suez Canal, 163 kilometers wide or 101 miles wide. Geopolitically, Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, east of the Suez Canal, is often, often, often considered part of Africa as well, as it joins to Saudi Arabia and the Arabian Peninsula, and that's the cutoff. The coastline of Africa is 16,000 miles long, or 26,000 kilometers long, and the absence of deep indentations of the shore is illustrated by the fact that Europe, which covers only 10,000 400 million kilometers, square kilometers, or 4 million square miles, is about a third of the surface of Africa and has a coastline of just 32,000 kilometers or 20,000 miles. From the most northerly point of Ras Ben Saka in Tunisia to the most southerly point of Cape Aguilias in South Africa, there is a distance of approximately 8,000 kilometers or 5,000 miles. While Cape Verde, the westernmost point is a distance of approximately 4,600 miles or 7,400 kilometers to Ras Hafun, which is the most easterly projection that neighbors Cape Guardafui in the tip of the Horn of Africa. So that's the length and width of the African continent. Africa's largest country is Algeria, and its smallest country is the Seychelles, an archipelago off the east coast of Africa. The smallest nation on the continental mainland is the Gambia, very small. The climate of Africa ranges from tropical to subarctic on its highest peaks. Its northern half is primarily desert or arid, while its central and southern areas contain both savanna plains and dense jungle rainforest regions. In between, there is a convergence where vegetation patterns such as Sahel and Steppe dominate. Africa is the hottest continent on earth and 60% of the entire land surface consists of drylands and deserts. The record for the highest ever recorded temperature in Libya in 1922 was 136 Fahrenheit or 58 Celsius. But that was discredited in 2013. <laughs> Ecology and, bi and biodiversity are for me some of the most interesting things because Africa has over 3000 protected areas with 198 marine protected areas, 50 biosphere reserves and 80 wetland reserves. Significant habitat destruction, increases in, in human population, and poaching are reducing Africa's biological diversity and arable land. Human encroachment, civil unrest, 
and the introduction of non-native species threatened biodiversity in Africa. This has been exacerbated by administrative problems, inadequate personnel, and funding problems. Deforestation is affecting Africa at twice the world rate, according to the United Nations Environment Program. According to the University of Pennsylvania African Studies Center, 31% of Africa's pasture lands and 19% of its forests and woodlands are classified as degraded. And Africa is losing over 4 million hectares of forest per year, which is twice the average deforestation rate for the rest of the world. Some sources claim that approximately 90% of the original virgin forests in West Africa have been destroyed. So sad. Over 90% of Madagascar's original forests have been destroyed since the arrival of humans 2,000 years ago. About 65% of Africa's agricultural land, agricultural land suffers from soil degradation. Very sad. So now we see soil retrogression and degradation are two regressive evolution processes associated with the loss of equilibrium of a stable soil. Retrogression is primarily due to soil erosion and corresponds to a phenomenon where succession reverts the land to its natural physical state. Degradation is an evolution different from natural evolution related to the local climate and vegetation. So this is what's being done and it's all being done through ecological disturbance and all kind of human activity. So soil retrogression and degradation is very high. In fact, African environmental issues are caused by human impacts on the natural environment and affect humans and nearly all forms of life. Issues include deforestation, soil degradation, air pollution, water pollution, garbage pollution, climate change, and water scarcity, resulting in problems with access to safe water supply and sanitation. These issues result in environmental conflict and are connected to broader social struggles for democracy and sovereignty. Another big issue is water. Water in Africa is an important issue encompassing the sources, distribution, and economic uses of the water resources on the continent. And this also is why in the global capital markets, there's always issues across the 54 countries of Africa about water. Overall, Africa has about 9% of the world's fresh water resources and 16% of the world's population. So we can already see the challenge. In demographics, the world population, in terms of the total number of humans currently living on the planet Earth, it was estimated by the United Nations to have exceeded 8 billion, right, as of the end of last year of 2022. So it took over 200,000 years of human prehistory and history for the human population to reach 1 billion, right? Now look at this, but it only took 219 years more 
to reach 8 billion. We have to pause on that because really this is astronomical, the level of human growth population because we've had a continuous growth following the great famine of 1315 to 1317, all the way up to the Black Death in 1350, when it was only 370 million on the planet. But you can see it has been steadily growing and growing and growing. The growth rate increased to over 1.8% per year between 1955 and 1975 peaking at 2.1% between 1965 and 1970. So the growth rate declined to 1.1% between 2015 and 2020, and it's projected to decline further you know, throughout the 21st century, but the global population is still increasing. The United Nations Department of Economics and Social Affairs projects between nine and 10 billion people by 2050 and gives an 80% confidence interval of 10 to 12 billion people by the end of the 21st century, with a growth rate by then of, of only zero. But still, other demographers predict that the human population will begin to decline only in the second half of the 21st century after 2050. But there is significant uncertainty about its long-term trajectory due to the changing fertility and mortality rates. But clearly, that affects our population and our access to water. Like among its rivers in Africa are the Congo, Nile, Zambezi, Niger, and Lake Victoria uh, as water sources. And Lake Victoria is considered the world's second largest lake. Yet the continent is the second driest in the world with millions of Africans still suffering from water shortages throughout the year. These shortages are attributed to problems of uneven distribution population boom, and poor management of existing supplies. Sometimes there are smaller numbers of people residing where there is large amount of water. For example, 30% of the continent's water lies in the Congo Basin, inhabited by only 10% of Africa's population. There is significant variation in the rainfall patterns observed in different places and times. There is also high evaporation rates in some parts of the region resulting in lower percentages of precipitation in such places. However, there is very significant inter and intra-annual variability of all climate and water resources characteristics. So while some regions have sufficient water, Sub-Saharan Africa faces numerous water-related challenges that constrain economic growth and threaten the livelihoods of its people. African agriculture is mostly based on rain-led and rain-fed farming, and less than 10% of cultivated land in the continent is irrigated. The impact of climate change and variability is thus very pronounced. The main source of electricity is hydropower, which contributes significantly to the current installed capacity for energy. For example, the Kainiji Dam is a typical hydropower resource generating electricity for all the large cities in Nigeria, as well as their neighboring country of Niger. Hence, the continuous investment in the last decade, which has increased the amount of power generated, will be critical for sustained electricity, but also for the importance of water on the continent. 
we'll end by talking about climate change. Climate change in Africa is an increasingly serious threat as Africa is among the most vulnerable continents to the effects of climate change. Some sources are even classifying Africa, quote, as the most vulnerable continent on earth, unquote. This vulnerability is driven by a range This is so important to understand. The power of understanding that climate change in Africa is an increasingly serious threat as Africa is among the most vulnerable continents to the effects of climate change. Some sources even classify Africa as quote, the most vulnerable continent on earth, unquote. This vulnerability is driven by a range of factors that include weak adaptability and weak adaptive capacity, high dependence on ecosystem goods for livelihoods, and less developed agricultural production systems. The risks of climate change on agricultural production, food security, water resources, and ecosystem services will likely have increasingly severe consequences on lives and sustainable development prospects in Africa. With high confidence, it was projected by the IPCC in 2007 that in many African countries and regions, agricultural production and food security would probably be severely compromised by climate change and climate variability. Managing the risk requires an integration of mitigation and adaption strategies in the management of ecosystem goods and services and the agricultural production systems in Africa. Over the coming decades, warming from climate change is expected to is expected across almost all the Earth's surfaces, and global mean rainfall will increase. Currently, Africa is warming faster than the rest of the world on average. Large portions of the continent may become uninhabitable as a result of the rapid effects of climate change, which would have disastrous effects on human health food security, and poverty. Regional effects on rainfall in the tropics are expected to be much more spatially variable, and the sign of change at any, any one location is often less certain, although changes are expected. Consistent with this, observed surface temperatures have generally increased over Africa since the late 19th century to the early 21st century by about one degree Celsius, but locally as much as three degrees Celsius for minimum temperature in the Sahel at the end of the dry season. Observed precipitation trends indicate spatial and temporal discrepancies as expected. The observed changes in temperature and precipitation vary regionally. So this is a very serious situation. We're really looking at a dangerous future for Africa as a result of climate change. So it's gonna affect the fauna you know, Africa boasts perhaps the world's largest combination of density and range of freedom of wild animal populations and diversity with wild populations of large carnivores such as lions, hyenas and cheetahs and herbivores such as buffalo, elephants, camels and giraffes ranging freely on primarily open non-private plains. It is also home to a variety of quote jungle unquote animals including snakes and primates and aquatic life such as crocodiles and amphibians.
In addition, Africa has the largest number of megafauna species as it was least affected by the extinction of the Pleistocene megafauna. So Africa has such an interesting uh, history and geography and, and economy. Um, we will end in understanding that Africa now has an African Union. It's a continental union consisting of 55 member states. And the union was formed with Addis Ababa, Ethiopia as its headquarters on June 26, 2001. Your, the union was officially established by July 9, 2002 as a successor to the Organization of African Unity. In July 2004, the African Union's Pan-African Parliament was relocated to Midrand in South Africa, but the African Commission on Human and People's Rights remained in Addis Ababa. The African Union, not to be confused with the African Union Commission, is formed by the Constitutive Act of the African Union, which aims to transform the African economic community, a federated commonwealth into a state under established international conventions. The African Union has a parliamentary government known as the African Union government, consisting of legislative, judicial, and executive organs. It is led by the African Union president and head of state, who is also the president of the Pan-African Parliament. A person becomes African Union president by being elected by the Pan-African Parliament and subsequently gaining majority support in the Pan-African Parliament. The powers and authority of the president of the African Parliament derive from the Constitutive Act and the Protocol of the Pan-African Parliament, as well as the inheritance of presidential authority stipulated by African treaties and by international treaties, including those subordinating the Secretary General of the Organization of African Union Secretariat or the African Union Commission to the Pan-African Parliament. The government of the African Union consists of all union, regional, state, and municipal authorities, as well as hundreds of institutions that together manage the day-to-day -day affairs of the institution. Extensive human rights abuses still occur in several parts of Africa, often under the oversight of the state. Most of such violations occur for political reasons often as a side effect of civil war. Countries where major human rights violations have been reported in recent times include the, the, include the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Sudan, Zimbabwe, and the Ivory Coast. And the African Union um, has an obligation because African states have made great efforts to respect interstate borders as inviolate for a long time, but the Organization of African Union, which was established in 1963 and replaced, replaced by the African Union in 2002, set the respect for the territorial integrity of each state as one of its principles in the Organization of African Union Charter. Indeed, compared with the formation of European states, there have been fewer interstate conflicts in Africa for changing the borders, which has influenced the state formation there, and it has enabled some states to survive that might have been defeated and absorbed by others. Yet, interstate conflicts have played out by support for proxy armies or rebel movements. Many states have experienced civil wars, including Rwanda, Sudan, Angola, Sierra Leone, Congo, Liberia, Ethiopia, and Somalia. So, so much information and such a rich discussion about what is happening and has been happening across Africa from history to geography, to economy, to polity, and so much more to discuss. So we'll continue the discussions next time.
Thank you so much for joining me on auditing the global capital markets with Allison. And we will continue our discussions on Africa momentarily. So we'll just take a pause and a break and get back into it in a few moments. Join me across the world of social media or email me or find me on the website and let me know your thoughts. Look forward to continuing the discussions. Again, this is Allison Johnson auditing the global capital markets with Allison. Look forward to you joining me next time. Find me at allison at 2414morgan.com or www.2414mdinternational.com and across all social media platforms as Allison Johnson. Signing off, take care and be back very soon. Cheers. <laughs>